Good morning, Calvary Bible Church. Our text for this morning is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. It is a privilege to join with you all in singing songs to our Savior and King this morning and every Sunday morning. And it is a greatly humbling privilege to continue our time of worship together as we read God's word and seek to apply it to our hearts and lives. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Apart from your word, we would be in the dark. We thank you that we can gather week in and week out to read it, and to apply it. Lord, I ask that in this time you would be with me, help me to clearly articulate and be clear in communicating your word and be with everyone here as they hear and respond. We know that apart from your indwelling spirit applying the truths of scripture to our lives, uh, we'd be without the ability to apply it. So help us in this time. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, as we look at this passage in 2 Peter, we will see two essentials for true spiritual growth. Two essentials for true spiritual growth. These essentials are that we must first recognize God's gracious provision, and we also must pursue the fruits of faith. The first is that we must recognize God's gracious provision. Peter communicates this to us in verses one through four. Our family recently had the opportunity to take a trip to Arizona, which was very enjoyable, good family time. 
But when driving through the Arizona desert, one is struck by just how little grows on its own. There's a whole lot of dirt, some sand, and not a whole lot of lush green trees. In Michigan, we take for granted all the rain that we get that makes our state a green and farmer-friendly environment. The desert is not so. While flying over the desert, you're able to make another observation. Here, our fields are square or rectangular or whatever shape they are. They have a lot of right angles due to property lines. But there, the fields are circular. The fields are circular because the irrigation systems rotate around a central pivot point. And nothing outside the range of that irrigation system grows because of the harsh weather and the minimal rain of that environment. It is a harsh environment. And any growth that is happening is happening because of the irrigation system. Like that field in the desert, how are we to grow in our faith? How is the seed of faith to grow and develop and to be cultivated into a life of godliness? How are we to develop into mature men and women of God? What is to be the means by which we go from spiritual infancy to spiritual adulthood and maturity? The environment of the crops in the desert does nothing to assist their growth. Likewise, the world, the flesh, and the devil will be doing nothing to assist our growth in godliness. We are in a hostile environment, and therefore we must rely on God's irrigation system to nourish the fruits of biblical obedience. In this passage, Peter confronts our tendency to self-motivated, self-sustaining, self-exalting striving by portraying the components of God's gracious provision. These components can be loosely illustrated by considering the illustration of a field in a desert. So as we consider God's gracious provision, the first component that we consider is the seed, the seed, the faith that we have received. This is in verse one. Verse one reads, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith. When you see a lush field in the desert, the first thing that you can note is that someone intentionally planted seeds. That God would graciously choose our lives, the barren and desert land that they are, to be the recipients of his divine mercy is a privilege that we could never deserve. The ESV reads obtained here. Perhaps your translation probably says received to describe our relationship to our faith. The thrust of this word is that we have been given a gift that we could not earn, that we did not deserve, and that it's been given to us by God. When we see a patch of green in the middle of a vast and harsh desert, we know that someone has dedicated significant engineering and agricultural effort to see life grow there. So too, when we consider the stony soil of our hard hearts, we know that if spiritual growth is happening, it's happening by God's gracious supply. 
Also note in verse 1, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. This is coming from the apostle Peter. The faith that each of us receive by God's grace is a faith that is qualitatively identical to the apostles. There's no such thing as a super Christian that's somehow on a a plane that we could never reach as quote-unquote common Christians. No, we have equal standing before God because it is Christ's righteousness, not our own, that makes us pleasing in God's sight. This, of course, shows that there's not a pool of apostolic righteousness or treasury of merits that we can somehow access by prayers to the saints. Peter's hope was in Christ's righteousness alone, and so too must ours be. So, the first component of this sanctification system is our faith, the seed mercifully planted by God. And the second component of God's provision in our lives is the source The source, it's God's own power. Divine power grants the growth. Look at verse three. His divine power has granted to us all things. Continuing the irrigation system illustration, God's own power is like the pressurized well that both provides and supplies the water and energizes the whole irrigation system. Now, farmers out there, I realize that it's not the pressurized well that actually provides the power for our sprinklers, but nevertheless. God's fullness is the fountainhead for all our needs. Everything required to produce a life of godliness is flowing downstream from God's power. In the same way that the Egyptian Nile River Delta is a fertile and rich region only because of the Nile's constant supply of water and nutrients, so too our Christian lives receive all their hydration and nutrition from God's graciously granting it to us. God is utterly and fully self-sufficient. He is not dependent on anything or anyone. He existed in eternity past without any dependence. When he created the world, He did not have any sense of neediness that he was seeking to satisfy by making mankind. Rather, the creation is and was a means of his magnifying his own glory. Nevertheless, in his fullness, his his fullness overflows in love to his creatures. And we see this in verse three. His divine power omnipotent, matchless. It overflows in supplying all that we need for life and godliness. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Our existence is one of complete dependence. To mix our agricultural metaphors a bit, we think of the words of Jesus in John 15, where he says, "'Abide in me, and I in you. "'As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself,' unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. God's power energizes our growth. 
So we've looked at the seed received, faith. We've considered the source, God's power, and now we look at the third component of this sanctification system, and that is the resource itself, the resource. And the resource is everything. Everything needed for godliness comes from him. Verse three, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Have you ever tried to grow a plant without watering it? I have, and it doesn't work. Plants die without water. Some die faster than others. And as a matter of fact, anything living needs certain resources to survive. The same is true of spiritual life. Spiritual life takes resources to survive and grow. And Peter lets us know which of these resources are supplied by God in verse three. All things pertaining to life and godliness. God has supplied for us, granted to us, everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. Of course, here the illustration of an irrigation system breaks down. I realize a plant needs more than just water to survive. It needs nutrients from the soil. It needs sunlight. But in this case, everything needed is supplied by God's power. Perhaps the illustration of a power grid would work better in thinking about our appliances at home. If you unplug any of them from the wall, if they're an electrical appliance, that is, they're not gonna work. In the same way, they must be plugged in, that they must be plugged into the power grid, so too we get all that we need. Every power we need for growth comes from the Lord. So, another component of of God's gracious provision for our spiritual growth, fourthly, is the pipeline. And continuing the irrigation system illustration is the pipeline. And this pipeline is knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is how the resources actually get to us. A well that is full of abundant resources does little good if it does not make it to the plants. The conduit and the channel by which we, what we need, how we get all that we need for spiritual growth, how that reaches our lives is through knowing Jesus. There are three places in this passage that point to the importance of knowing Jesus for growth. The first is in verse two, the second is in verse three, and then in verse eight. So we skipped verse two, going back to it. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Verse three, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And then verse eight, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's chosen channel for salvation is the same channel used for providing sanctification, namely, true knowledge of Jesus Christ. Saving faith is sanctifying faith. Saving faith is sanctifying faith. God grants all things for life and godliness through the conduit of knowledge. Not mere intellectual assent, but also not less than that, but true relationship that is fueled by what God has revealed about himself in his word. So let me ask you, are you growing in your knowledge of Jesus Christ? 
How long has it been since you read through a gospel, perhaps with pen in hand, seeking to learn about your Savior? Do you better understand who Jesus is today than you did yesterday? And what steps could you take this week to grow in your knowledge of Jesus? Knowing Christ is how we grow in Christ. Knowing Christ is how we grow in Christ. So the pipeline is absolutely essential. But an irrigation pipeline still does little good for crops if there are not specific places where water can flow out of the pipe and actually onto those plants. And the last component of God's sanctification system in this verse is God's promises. These are like the spray heads on an irrigation system. God's precious promises sustain our souls with specificity. Look at verse four with me. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. The promises of God are like the individual access points that nourish our souls and provide us with confidence that God is working in us, through us, and for us. These are not just random promises taken from scripture and abstractly misapplied. We ought not place any of our confidence in mishandled texts of God's word, violently ripped from the loving arms of their context. An example of this error is the misapplication of promises that were meant for the nation of Israel. Fortunately, we're not left to guess what sort of promises Peter has in mind when he speaks of promises. He mentions promises three more times in chapter three of this letter. In this letter, he he points to the sorts of promises he has in mind where he says in verse four, nine, and 13, promises pertaining to the return of the Lord, placing our hope in that promise, the timing of the Lord's return, trusting that his patience is purposeful. And in verse 13, the promise of the new heavens and the new earth where we look to in hope. Each of these provide us with great comfort and they sustain our growth in godliness. And note what these promises facilitate. Look at chapter one, verse four again. Granted us these precious and very great promises so that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. (laughs) Note that these promises facilitate our becoming partakers of divine nature. This does not mean that we become little gods, far from it, but it does remind us that many of God's characteristics He graciously shares with us so that we become like him in specific ways. An example of this is holiness. In verse four, it shows us that we're freed from slavery to sin, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Sinful desire brought corruption into our world. This is a point that needs no illustration. We all know this. We've all felt this. We're all aware of this. But by God's mercy, the believer has escaped such corruption and experiences the joy of walking in newness of life. Through Christ, we are freed to be holy. We become slaves to righteousness, no longer slaves to sin. 
Peter spoke more of this in his first letter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 through 16, where he says, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We become partakers of the divine nature as we share in these things. Note this is divine nature, not personhood. We do not become God. We share in God's attributes as we, by faith, experience God's promises working out in our own lives. So, these first four verses of this passage, Peter establishes here that everything, truly everything we have, is a gift from God. Like a flourishing field in the desert that is utterly dependent on its irrigation system, so too our true spiritual growth is fully dependent on his gracious provision. Recognizing God's gracious provision addresses the error of thinking that we are the captains of our fate, that we are the deciders of our destiny, and that we are the authors of our salvation. This great confrontation to our prideful tendency to think that we're the decisive agent in our salvation is to realize that our very faith is a gift from God. Our knowledge of Jesus Christ is a merciful gift from God, and above all this, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Everything needed for living a life pleasing to God is granted to us by that God we are seeking to please. This is a marvelous reality that strips us of all pride and self and leaves us in a posture of utter dependence and absolute worship. So the first essential to true spiritual growth is that we must recognize God's gracious provision. This is what we see in the first four verses. But the second essential to spiritual growth is that we must pursue the fruits of faith. We must pursue the fruits of faith, verses five through 11. If we stopped reading at verse five, which was admittedly my initial plan for this sermon, we would be left with a severely lopsided view of sanctification. The first four verses of this letter communicate marvelous realities that provide grounds for great rejoicing and worship, things that we will be worshiping the Lord for for eternity, but it's not yet a complete thought. This is not let go and let God. We're not passive in our sanctification. We are called to pursue with diligence the supplementation of certain virtues in our lives. We are absolutely saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, as revealed in his word alone. Amen. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But as we read on, we realize that this gift was given for a purpose, We've received this gift for a purpose. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Faith, quote unquote, that does not produce evidence of its presence. Whatever it may be, it is not saving faith in Jesus Christ. Biblical faith, a faith that is truly fixed on Jesus Christ, produces visible fruits in our lives. 
And for this reason, we are exhorted by the Apostle Peter to vigorously pursue these fruits. So as we consider the pursuit of these fruits in our lives, let us ask three questions. What, why, and how? What, why, and how? Unfortunately, these are three questions that Peter answers in this passage. The first question, what are these fruits? Verses five through seven, what are these fruits? Galatians 5, something familiar to most of us, is where Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. This is the term he uses to describe the fruits of faith. And this rightly highlights that anything of truly lasting spiritual value is produced by the Holy Spirit's indwelling work in our lives. We are fruitless apart from his ministry. Peter, nevertheless, focuses on our own call to cultivate these fruits. Note that rather than just provide a raw listing of virtues and fruits to pursue, Peter chooses to loop them together. By repeating each fruit before moving on to the next, he, he binds them all together tightly. This is not merely a sequence of you do this and, and then you do this and then you do this. No, these are meant to be like an iron chain with each link vitally connected to the others. In a whole chain that's meant to be an unbroken whole in the life of us as believers. So, verses five through seven of chapter one. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. And I fully realize a sermon could be preached on each one of these alone, but a cursory overview must suffice this morning. The first is virtue. This is faith gone public. As Luther says of virtue, we are to let our faith break out before the world so as to be zealous, busy, powerful, and active, and to do many works. Let it not remain idle and unfruitful. The second is knowledge. We are to pursue a growing knowledge of who God is. This knowledge does not bypass the mind. Growth in true knowledge of God will come in through our ears or through our eyes, through hearing or reading God's word. That information then provides the raw material that the Holy Spirit applies to our lives. Thirdly is self-control. This fruit provides a governing and a regulating influence on our conduct and lets us appropriately act as God would have us. Without this, we would be unstable. Fourthly is steadfastness. This is faithful endurance in the same direction. Flash in the pan and emotionally fueled discipleship is tragically unprepared for the storms of life. We must be steady in our pursuit of Christ-likeness. Fifth is godliness. Already spoken of above, godliness is the cultivation of godly character in our lives. This is a life of devotion and piety. It is a Godward existence, you could say. Sixth is brotherly affection. We must cultivate a real and a growing love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Our Christian walk is not an individual experience. It's a corporate journey. And seventh is love. Not only are we called to be loving God and those in the family, but to be generally marked by love for all people. So having understood what these fruits are, 
we turn now to looking at why we should cultivate them. The second question, why are we to cultivate them? This is the question of motivation. Why should we cultivate these fruits? Verses eight through 11. Peter lists these verses, in these verses, five motivations for cultivating the fruits of faith. And actually the first is in verse five, the rest are in eight through 11. The first motivation for cultivating these fruits is seen in verse five, which we've read already. For this very reason, it's the motivation of gratitude. Pursuing and cultivating these fruits flows from a heart, is motivated by a heart of gratitude for all that we've received in Christ. It flows from what we've received from him. It's gratitude-motivated obedience. The second motivation for cultivating these fruits is that having these fruits prevents fruitless faith. That sounds extremely obvious, but nevertheless, Peter reiterates in verse eight, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Having these qualities ensures usefulness and fruitfulness. Every believer longs to be a faithful servant, to be useful to our king. And these virtues, these fruits, show us the way to do that. Also, verse eight addresses something that I wanna call to your attention. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, this confronts the error of Christian perfectionism, thinking that we can somehow reach a level of perfection here on earth where we have complete sanctification. No, in all of these categories, we must be growing until the day we die. These must be increasing. It is not a checkbox. We don't like check five out of seven and I got most way there. No, we never get to a level where we've maxed out any of these virtues. We're to be growing in these all our lives. So the third motivation for cultivating these fruits is that it prevents blind faith. These fruits prevent blind faith. Verse nine, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. We know from James 2, verses 14 through 18, that faith without works is dead. And Peter knows that too. So he warns his readers of ill-founded assurance. Faith, quote unquote, without works is indistinguishable from spiritual deadness. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 tells us that we must examine ourselves. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. We must examine ourselves, and if there is no fruit to examine, then it should be a very short exam. To live a life without visible fruit of salvation and growth in godliness is to live in the dark on your own spiritual condition. The result is a life filled with doubt and uncertainty and forgetfulness produced by blindness, an inability to observe any spiritual fruit. Such a person without the fruits of godliness should not have any grounds for confidence in their own salvation because they are failing to live in light of whatever profession they may have made in their lives in the past. So my question is, are you examining yourself? Do you see these fruits 
in your lives. Husband, does your wife see these fruits? Sibling, young or old, what would your brothers and sisters say that they see in your life? A fourth motivation for cultivating these fruit is that having these fruit prevents final falling. Prevents final falling. Verse 10, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Seeing visible fruits of righteousness in our lives, the growing garden of godliness gives us great confidence that indeed the seeds of faith have been planted in the soil of our hearts and they have been watered by a growing knowledge of Jesus Christ. Seeing these fruits is a personal confirmation of our own election and calling. It brings comfort and indication that we're not in danger of falling. There are many ways that we may seek false assurance of salvation. One example is by placing our confidence in a prayer that we prayed as a child, or perhaps placing our confidence in a hand that we raised at a conference, or maybe a certain spiritual feeling we had at a revival service. All of these sources of assurance are faulty because they are not God's prescribed methods of providing comfort and assurance. This passage teaches us that if we want to confirm that we are indeed called and are indeed elected by God for salvation, then we should be able to see the fruit of salvation in our lives. And that is a great comfort. Fifthly, the fifth motivation is that it provides absolute confidence of eternal life. The fifth motivation for cultivating these fruits is that we are supplied confident entrance into heaven by having a life of substance. Verse 11 reads, For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul speaks of this dynamic in 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15, where he explains that certain of our works will be burned up if they're not true spiritual fruit, but that what remains will result in us receiving a reward. And even as we bring before God the fruit of lives that sought to honor him, we will still be recognizing that everything and all that we have is from the Lord. We merely bring back and present to him, offer to him what he has given to us. So these are the motivations that Peter gives for us to cultivate these fruits in our lives. But now, having come to the end of verse 11, let's zoom out on this passage and ask one more question. We've asked the what, We've asked the why, but let's zoom out and ask how. How? If we are called to diligently cultivate these fruit, how is it to be done? How are we to cultivate these fruits? From these verses, there are three general directions for us to apply. First, we're to grow in knowledge. Second, we're to apply God's promises. And third, we're to practice these fruit. Grow in knowledge, apply God's promises, and practice these fruits. First, we're to grow in knowledge. We must have a genuine saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and a vital growing relationship with him. You must first ask yourself, am I saved? Am I born again? Have I trusted in Jesus Christ 
as my personal Lord and Savior, submitting to him as my Lord and handing over the reins of my life to him. Truly, you must know the glorious truths of the gospel, that God is holy, he is righteous in all of his dealings, that we are sinners and are desperately in need of rescue from our pending and justly pending damnation. And that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, came to earth, was born a man, lived the life that we could not, died the death that we could not, and in our place paid the penalty for our sins, which we would have spent an eternity in hell for. And not only did he pay for those sins on the cross, but he rose from the dead, indicating that he was victorious over sin and death. And we know that all who call on him will assuredly be saved for their salvation in no other name but Jesus Christ. Yes, you must know these things, and you must know them rationally to be saved. But we are not only to know of these truths, we must believe and truly believe in the person and the saving work of Jesus Christ. So this is the starting point. You must be born again. You must know Jesus But not only is this the starting point, this is also what we need as a continual source of nourishment in our lives as believers. God has revealed himself to us in a book. As 21st century believers awaiting Christ's return bodily, we are to grow in our knowledge of Christ and thereby cultivate the fruits of faith. And we're to do this by hearing, by reading, by internalizing all that God has revealed to us about himself in his word. This is not passive. God has prescribed how we are to grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ, and it doesn't bypass the mind. A true and vital relationship with Jesus Christ is certainly more than hearing and reading God's word, but it is not less. So the first method for cultivating the fruits of faith is knowledge. The second is through applying God's promises. We must apply God's promises. We must actively consider and rightly apply God's promises to our lives. We read of the promises in verse four. And this requires knowing God's word and rightly applying its truth to our lives. Scripture is filled with promises. Promises that God has given to nourish and sustain us as believers throughout our time on earth. In John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, there's a place where Christian and hopeful are walking the path that the the king has set before them to reach the celestial city. And they go through a very enjoyable season where the the path is soft on their feet, but they get to a point where it's it's rocky and it's hard, and and that path of discipleship is challenging. But they realize that just just over the ledge, there's there's a path that runs just parallel with the path they're on. So Christian thinks, well, maybe let's just hop the fence and we'll We'll, um, we'll walk on that path instead. Well, tragically, those paths diverged. As they thought, sought the path of ease, little did they know that they were on the property of the giant despair. And they fell asleep on that property. And when they woke up, they were in the dungeon of the giant despair, in Doubting Castle, wasting away. See, whenever we seek an easier path through disobedience, spurning the road that God has marked out for us, God's children are inevitably brought to a place of doubt and despair. Things become dark and we lose our way. 
And the consequence is uncertainty, distrust, and even doubting our own salvation. But as Christian and hopeful rotted in that dungeon, on Sunday morning, Christian remembered something. He remembered that he had been given a key by one of the king's servants. And this key was called promise. This key could unlock any door in the dungeon, any door in the doubting castle, and return them to the right path. And sure enough, as Christian tried each lock, it opened, and Christian and Hopeful were able to flee and get back on the right path. This aptly illustrates the importance of knowing and applying God's promises to our lives. When laziness and seeking an easier path than actually seeking to cultivate these fruits, when those things have left us and led us into Doubting Castle, we must make haste to use God's promises as they were intended to both comfort us and spur us on to obedience. And note that this is not name it and claim it. We do not make up the promises. These are God's promises that he gives to us. It's our place to believe them and to trust in him. So to cultivate these fruits, we must grow in knowledge, we must apply God's promises, and lastly, we must practice these fruits. We are to seek to actually live these out in our lives. Verse 10, Therefore, my brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. Paul says in Philippians 2, 12-13, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is to be our daily exertion to be exercising these qualities. Let not a day go by where you do not exert your faith, express virtue, grow in knowledge, exhibit self-control, maintain steadfast patience, display godliness, show brotherly affection to those in the body and sacrificially love those around you. These are not passive traits meant to be put in some Christian trophy case, but they're fruits meant to be cultivated and enjoyed. These are tools meant to be used for edifying our brothers and sisters. These are graces meant to be exhibited to the world as we represent Christ. So the method of pursuing this spiritual growth is one that requires active engagement on our part. We are to truly pursue these things with effort and with diligence. Fields in the desert do not grow apart from water. But if you could talk to a plant, it would tell you that it takes a lot of energy to produce fruit. True spiritual growth is an absolute essential and a confounding mystery. It is powered entirely by God's divine power and yet contingent on our obedience. It is supplied by a true knowledge of Jesus Christ, and yet we're called to grow in that knowledge. As we seek to grow in our walk with the Lord and to see true spiritual growth develop in our lives, let us never forget the two essentials that God shows us in his word and remember that we must recognize God's gracious provision and also pursue the fruit of faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word by which we know these things. And we thank you for these realities themselves that you 
saved us. As we were running away from you, you saved us from our rebellion. We thank you for your taking our lives and choosing to make us gardens of your grace. Help us, Lord, to recognize all that you've provided for us in Christ and also to obediently pursue the cultivation of these fruits in our lives. We are utterly dependent on you for this and we are so thankful for all you've done for us. We thank you. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.